0: Tina know nō mai haere my Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, a new poll reveals a frontrunner in the race to become Auckland's next mayor. Then, Nationals Transport spokesperson Simeon Brown on what he calls the War on Cars and an investigation
1: into government contracts awarded to the family members of a political rival. So, I'm not saying that conflicts of interest Mm. don't exist. Um, And, you know, I've been very careful about in all my comments around this particular issue.
0: We'll have that story for you shortly. But first, it's less than two weeks until polls close in the local body elections. And for the first time since 2016, our biggest city is set to have a new mayor. And whoever takes over in Tamaki Makoto will have their work cut out. It's 12 years since Auckland became a super city, and after two terms as mayor, former Labour leader Phil Goff is standing down. His replacement will face a range of challenges in serving a city that's fast approaching 2 million residents. From the earliest stages of the mayoral campaign, Auckland's transport network has shaped up as a major point of contention. Yes, the engineering is impressive, but the city's new multi-billion dollar underground central rail link doesn't yet have a completion date. Many of the above ground businesses in the vicinity of the construction have been devastated by the impact of the disruption. What's more, the government's proposed light rail project remains highly contentious. The current vision is for a 24-kilometre route that would link the CBD to the airport and open up suburbs for more intensive housing. The project's forecast to cost more than $14 billion all up, although how much ratepayers would pay hasn't yet been decided. And, of course, as always, cycleways, roads and the funding of public transport are all up for debate. As well as transport, as Auckland's population swells, where Aucklanders will actually live is one of the city's more divisive and important issues. Although the government wants to see much more intensive housing closer to the CBD, the council has sought to shield some of the city's central suburbs from new intensification laws, giving much of the old villa neighbourhoods heritage protection and shaping up for a legal fight. There's debate too over the future of Auckland council organisations. Auckland Transport, the ports of Auckland and Watercare, and Tamaki Makoto's new mayor, will inherit a super city's worth of challenges. Now, we asked Kantar Public to poll voters in Auckland in the contest for the city's mayoralty. This time, there was a bit of an interesting turn. The day we finished polling Auckland, the day, Viv Beck announced she would be withdrawing from the race. And even though her name has remained on ballot papers, she stopped campaigning. So, with Kantar Public, we decided to poll all over again. And we're going to present both of those results to you. The first poll was taken just before Viv Beck withdrew from the race. Of voters who responded, 29% supported current councillor Ephesel Collins. 24% supported former Far North District Mayor, businessman Wayne Brown. 14% supported Viv Beck. Craig Lord came in fourth place with 10% support. But this is the Q&A Kantar public poll taken this week after Viv Beck withdrew. Wayne Brown has moved into first place with 35% support. If Collins is unmoved, still on 29%, 8% of those who responded still say they'll vote for Viv Beck. Craig Lord also has 8% support. A couple of quick notes. First of all, of the 1,000 voters we polled this week, 43% either didn't know who they'll vote for or wouldn't say. To qualify for our debate, Auckland's candidates needed to get at least 10% in three publicly available scientific polls. As well as Ophesal Collins and Wayne Brown, Craig Lord just squeezed in, hitting exactly 10% in the first of our polls. So he technically qualifies, but he's a long way behind the other candidates. Now, before we bring you their respective visions, one last point in the interest of transparency. Wayne Brown is my next-door neighbour. He literally lives right next door to me, so we see each other often. And, of course, Efesil Collins is a long-time panellist on q and I sat down with the candidates at AUT. Wayne Brown, Efesil Collins, Craig Lord. Tēnā Koto. Wayne, I'll start with you. Is this your race to lose?
2: Well, I hope not. I, mean, I hope it's my race to win. <laughs> uh, and it's gratifying to find that I'm in the lead in the poll and uh, that it's clearly a two-horse race between spenders and savers, and, uh, and I'm humble that people want me to fix Auckland.
0: You've seen a surge in your numbers since Viv Beck pulled out of the race, but, but to the best of my knowledge, she hasn't publicly endorsed you. Why uh,
2: is that? I'm not sure whether she has or hasn't. Her, the, her backers apparently have, but um, we've, I've been steadily rising all year long, really.
3: If you saw, what happened? Why are you trailing? Oh look, right from the beginning I've been saying this is a tight race and we're taking nothing for granted. And We're out there on the pavement, pounding the pavement. I've been across the city and making sure that we're meeting people and I think that's what's important. I suspect that you know people take their time and they need time to get all the information and there's real genuine interest in this uh, local government election now and that's where I think people are at and there'll be interest over the next couple of weeks to see this race to the end.
0: You enjoy a high profile in Auckland, you're a current councillor, you're on TV all the time and unlike some of the other candidates here you haven't had to compete with similar in a similar position on the political spectrum. You haven't had other candidates on the centre-left. So why are you only at 30%?
3: Yeah, I think this is a reflection of the low voter turnout that we have in Auckland, or in local government across the across the country. And so what's really important is what I've been saying right from the beginning. It's a tight race, and it's important that we get out there and we meet people, and we sell our vision. We promote a vision. You know, Wayne's described a particular vision or version of spending and non-spending. I'm promoting a vision that's future-focused about our kids, climate resilient, and ensuring that there's diversity that we accept and we tolerate within the city, that's the future-focused I'm uh, committing to. Not trying to stay us back in 2010 when Wayne was a, a mayor.
0: You say that it's voter apathy and a low voter turnout that you're putting your numbers down to, but. The last two mayors, both of whom were centre-left mayors, also contended with low voter turnout, and they were doing much better than you are.
3: Yeah, and I think what we'll see is we'll see people turn out. My job is to get out there and make sure people are aware of the vote, and that's what we're doing at the moment. I'm really confident we will win on the 8th of October. These numbers give us a snapshot for where people are at at the moment. My own polling suggests that I'm in front at the moment. So this is good. This shows us that it's a tight race and I'm out there to win the vote. Craig, you're a distant third. Why haven't you pulled out of this race?
4: It's brand awareness, that's all it is. For you? Yeah, yeah, purely and simple. People go off brand you're awareness.
0: You're still in this because of brand? You're trying to improve your
4: brand awareness? Yeah, or yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to improve your brand awareness, right? So you can only do what you can do. Now, if you're not spoken about from mainstream media, your brand is going to be lesser by default. Now, why do they choose who they're going to talk about? They use a poll. Because that's what you use to garner a small, as, if as I said, a snapshot.
0: You ran for me three years ago. Yep. Your billboards are all over town. Yep. You've been in plenty of debates. And yet, still, people don't know who you are.
4: That's mainstream media. And you've got to admit, that is what it is. Because it's not just from a roadside billboard that gets you the coverage. It's from your ads and your mainstream media. Now, that's why I don't take too much stock in the poll. Because I'm using a different format for my message.
0: Facebook likes.
4: I am social media across different aspects of it, and it's big, and I'm quite comfortable that we're uh, going well and we're we're tracking pretty good.
0: Let's talk about some of the issues that will define this election. I'm going to start with transport. More than half the voters we polled say they want free public transport, even if that public transport is funded by rates. Efeso, this is your big policy. Why does Auckland need free public transport?
3: Well it's supported by your poll supported by my poll that said 73% of Aucklanders want it. So this is good. We're all lifting our eyes. It's good for us because we're going to decongest our roads. It's good for climate emissions because we're going to decarbonise. And the way we're going to pay it, and I've said this right throughout the campaign, is we're going to take from the buckets of money available to us already, I've already identified $2 billion worth of money, whether it's contracts or whether it's transport budgets, and we make getting people out of their cars and onto the the bus, our focus, and that's how we're going to pay for you it. You haven't given a lot of detail around that. You, no, you, you've identified sort of
0: broad areas of how, you, when, when it comes to how you pay for it. Give us a bit more detail. Give us the specifics as to how you'd fund a policy that will cost more than $200 million a year.
3: Yeah, so it's around $236 million. I've identified the customer experience budget which is about $350 so million. Customer
0: experience, is that really, is that public That's
3: 350000000 million. I'd say to you that the best customer experience is just getting on, swiping on with your hop card and you're on the bus. The other budget I've talked about is the IT budget, how we're phasing the lights, and then there's roading projects, that's 291, that's a billion dollars. We also have a billion dollars worth of consulting costs that I'm looking at too. All of that's going to be able to pay the 236 million that's needed. So half price public
0: transport's been in place for months around Aotearoa now. I want to quote from Auckland Transport's assessment of the city's public transport from last month, quote affordability is not the major barrier to public transport usage among non-users. So it's the quality of the service, not the price that's the barrier to usage. If that's the case, how can you justify a policy that costs $230 million a year?
3: They haven't read the report by Jen MacArthur from the University College London, which was put out in February of this year, which clearly states that you move people out of it when you remove the cost uh, impediment. And that cost impediment also has an impact on the cost of living crisis that we're experiencing at the moment. So this is a triple win for our people because we know that for some families, 30% of their home budget goes towards transport we're alleviating them of those costs during a cost of living crisis this works for the community and that's why it doesn't surprise me that on your own poll 51 percent of people support it.
0: Wayne you've said you'll sack the board of Auckland Transport but aside from that what is your transport strategy for the city?
2: Well right it starts at the top really you have to have a board of competent people from the industry and you also put on there the users' representatives as well, so your customers will give you feedback. And the customers, they want full buses, just like the people paying for them want full buses. And nothing's free, just somebody else pays for it. But uh, we also need to have someone there who's specialist in IT, because we have a particularly dumb um, signals network in Auckland. Things don't link together, there's nothing there to speed the buses up. If you, but at the moment, the price isn't the, what makes people get out of a bus, really. Um, if you're coming in Dominion Road in the morning for instance there, the bus stops at the same stop, that you red light that you stop at. I'm going to put transponders on the buses, so the bus goes through those red lights, that the, the flicks up to green, bus goes through. If you're sitting in the traffic and the bus is now five kilometres ahead, you might start thinking maybe there is a reason to change. And right. so um, it is about speed of service rather than actual price. I mean, millions of people catch the tube in, in, in uh, other cities and they all pay for it, but it's a good service.
0: I wanna, I'm really interested in this technology point, and maybe you can unpack it for us a bit more. Do you have any idea as to what retrofitting buses and traffic light systems would cost in the city if you want to have this
2: aligned system? IT is way, bit, way cheaper than civil works. I mean, when you actually get out and do... And I'm a civil engineer. Mm. When you actually do something to the road, it costs a lot when you actually um, brain up your IT system. We're in a digital age. Oddly enough, we're not in a digital voting age, but we are in a digital age. And uh, we also, things are broadcast now, so you don't actually have to run wires to think. And so, um, uh,
0: Sure, but if you've got like a system with the, where, the, where the bus is talking to the traffic lights, so the bus is waiting at the traffic lights, got a transponder that says, okay, actually, I'm a bus, I should be prioritised ahead of cars. Yes. How much is that going to cost to set up that technology, not only in the buses, but in the traffic lights as well?
2: It's, it's in comparison with civil works, it's a fraction of the cost. Right. and. Um, They already have an IT budget in there, which he's going to can in order to... um, Well, you don't know how
3: much your own IT thing's going to cost. You can't name a price.
2: The other part of technology is one of the smartest roads here is Wangaparaua Road, which goes two one way and one the other way coming into town in the morning and reverses in the evening. And that's a set of lights. It's digital information given to the driver and they behave accordingly. We've been doing it on the Harbour Bridge. Right. since I was at school um, and we don't do it on our roads enough but we are doing it on that one and that's a good thing for Dominion Road and it's a hell of a lot cheaper than $14 billion for a light rail I guess my
0: point, my point is that the technology is only really useful in multi-lane roads isn't it because otherwise you could have a bus sitting at the lights behind a single car
2: Oh, and well, you have, It is part of a package but, right? Um, but the, the package is, is timed like at the moment To tell you when you're in a lane or not, there's an old painted sign, which is often behind a tree that you can't see, and it's not up to date. And people make mistakes going down Queen Street. I mean, most of us have been caught at some stage or other because you're in a lane and you can't see there's a sign. If there's a light above you, and and these things are relatively cheap. Mm. I mean, we used to have um, electric wires all over our buses when they had trolley buses, but unfortunately it took them down, and that wasn't prohibitive either. It was a hell of a lot cheaper than fixing the road.
0: Craig. You've said you have evidence in the form of a letter from the boss of AT that Auckland Transport is deliberately creating congestion to get more people no, no, into public no. transport.
4: Former CEO of Auckland Council.
0: Right. OK, so you've corrected yeah. that.
4: It sounds a little bit conspiratorial to a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, well, that's the fact of the matter. It's what was said, so that's not, a, so that's w- not what, w- what I said. So what does it say?
0: Qu- qu- well, quite basically they're
4: saying if we restrict traffic, and there is actually a, a ZB interview I have on my social media with, with Heather talking to people about this who are in positions saying, yes, that's what we're doing. We are social engineering. So if we restrict traffic flows, if we make it difficult to use the car, people will get out of it. And I, I find that abhorrent. I think it's a terrible way to do it.
0: Do you support the government's light rail project? No. Do you, official?
3: Yes, but only if it's uh, at grade, so not the tunnelled version. And my, the version I'm suggesting is seven billion dollars less.
2: Wayne, it fails to explain what problem it's fixing for me.
3: Here's a question for all of you: Should
0: more road space be given over to cycleways, Craig?
3: No. So. Yes, it should be. We've got to learn to share and we've got to ensure that cyclists, if we've got an inter- well-connected um, system, are going to be safe and that's what's the point for me. Wayne?
2: In certain places, at certain costs, it makes sense. But a blanket uh, a blankets, um, statement for everywhere doesn't make sense. Um, in Ormiston, for instance, there's great wide footpaths with very few people on it and a strip of paint down the middle there would solve that quite simply. Um, but there are, and there are, I'm very much about uh, introducing cycleways where they don't inconvenience everybody else and they don't cost too much. The cycleway where we live is, it was $12,000 a metre. That's ridiculous. You can build a hotel for, for $5,000 a square metre, but there are other places where it makes a lot of sense. And so where possible and where it's going to be used... Um, I'm in favour of them but do they have to be both ways on both sides of the street um, and again if we are going to have put in, in place excellent cycleways and the one on K Road was expensive but it is excellent but should all cyclists use that because in fact you can nearly get run over by a guy on a scooter having crossed over the the um, cycleway the, is a cycleway a place where they have to we don't have clear rules about this there are, I mean I cycle Quite slowly because I'm um, and I don't have a very complex cycle, but the other people raw past and like her at 40k's. Um, should we be in the same place? I don't know. It's not even clear. So we don't have a clear picture of what cycleways are, and they are generally way too expensive. So
0: our, our poll results show that 60% of voters don't want more road space to be given over to cycleways. Official, can you give us your vision? for how cycleways should sit within the city's transport network.
3: Yeah look if, we're, if climate resilience is the focus and that's what's been underpinning my campaign, this is about talking to Aucklanders better. AT had a poll out and that says that 56% of people, more of people would cycle if the, the infrastructure was safe and protected so we're going to see that and you have it more often, we are 70 years we've been car reliant and so it's important that as we build the city that's going to be ready for 2.4 million people in the next 18 years it's going to be a city where there's not going to be no more road space so we've got to learn to share and we've got to learn to work with people the failure of AT has been that they haven't been good at communicating with the community as to how this development's going to happen but you look at research overseas as well uh, the Melbourne study showed really clearly the Catriona study showed clearly that there was increased retail uh, spend when they had cycleways along areas where there was retail so I think there's a bit of scaremongering going on here and I it's important we talk to uh, our communities first, let them know what's coming and then we plan this development rather than lay it on people. Do you
0: support a trial of a cycle lane over the Auckland Harbour Bridge?
3: Yeah I absolutely do for 6 or 12 months because it'll give us a genuine opportunity to assess how successful Mm -hmm. it's going to be look the the second harbour crossing has to come, that's going to come hopefully in the next 10 years, it's already planned for, it's under the current ATAP, it was brought forward Mm -hmm. 10 years under this current council so we've got to look at ways where again share road space and if that means getting cyclists over safely I think uh, trialling the Harbour Bridge is a way to go.
0: Wayne do you support that trial?
2: No, I, I, what I want to do is have a cycle only um, simple um, barge that just runs across underneath the bridge because it's flattering. I like to cycle around the flat places around West Haven, and I'd love to be able to catch a simple barge straight across under the bridge and cycle all the way to Takapuna and have a swim. Craig? Now, if you want empirical data,
4: what you do is you get a mini bus or a minivan with a bike trailer, or you put bike racks on the buses on that northern busway link, and you make data. You find out the stats of who really wants to use the Harbour Bridge for a cycle. They can hop on that bike uh, trailer, hop in the van, go across. We can get all the data, we can do it, and after six to 12 months, we can work out there's 50 people who want to use it or there's 500. And I'd rather do that and we're not restricting a lane down just for a silly trial.
0: After the break on Q&A, we ask Auckland's candidates if in neighbourhoods with these, you should be able to build more of these. Hawkey Mai, welcome back. We'll take you back to our conversation with Auckland's three leading mayoral candidates, Wayne Brown, Faisal Collins and Craig Lord. We asked voters if they support or oppose greater housing intensification in their neighbourhoods in order to help make housing more affordable in the city. According to our poll, it's almost a dead-even split. Of course, Auckland councils used a special character qualifier to exclude most of Ponsonby, most of Grey Lynn, affluent suburbs close to the city from government density laws. Craig, is that in the best interests of Auckland City?
4: Yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with the Auckland Unitary Plan that existed and looking after character homes. At the end of the day, Auckland doesn't have much character. There's not a lot here and if we start bowling some of these beautiful villas that we've got, what will we have left? Very, very little and I really want to keep them and I don't think that putting uh, high-rise buildings in those spots is actually going to do much to improve the housing problems that Auckland has. There's already around 900,000 spots available in that Auckland Unitary Plan which the ratepayers paid around 2. I think 4 billion dollars over a couple of years to have it done with all the consultants and all, all the support that was done to come up with that unitary plan and now it's going to get thrown out the window uh, that just makes no sense to me
3: Faisal. Housing is a basic human right. We know that from the United Nations, we look across our city, we know that there are 24,000 people in our city who are homeless. The Salvation Army tell us we're about 30,000 houses short and I know that we've got about 40,000 ghost houses in Auckland. Firstly, let's get meeting with those homeowners because if housing's a basic human right we shouldn't just be using it as something to make money out of. That's the problem that we have. Secondly, I'm all about intensification. I live in an apartment, we've made this decision, we're close to good amenities we're close to the bus and it means we don't need a car. So that's good in the the way that we live and it's role modelling to the city that we can do this. And we've got to remember that as an an evolving city, we're 2.4 million people in the next 20 years. This is the only way we're going to be able to to have people find somewhere to stay. So I think it's, you know, your data showed that we're pretty much at a crossroads with getting people to agree. What we've got to do is have a much clearer conversation. The government's come in with this legislation but we We've got to do better to communicate with people.
0: Wayne what do you think of the special character carve out is that in the best interest of Aucklanders?
2: Well we had a quite good district plan it took a long time I actually went through the agony process of actually lodging a submission to the district plan and as they go it's not bad. Um, I object to um, Wellington interfering again and telling suddenly changing something that Aucklanders have worked quite hard on and uh, I, th- I think it's, it's not well thought through and it does have um, things that are wrong with it and I think that interfering with the, con- the character areas is wrong. Um, though I agree with what Craig was saying there that, that that's part of what, what of what is nice about certain areas. Uh, but Auckland's a big city. It's got rural parts up north and it's got rural parts down south as well. In terms of the CBD... There's an opportunity for a lot of um, more intensification because as a result of COVID, 40% of the offices are empty and they will stay empty and council planners need to be told very quickly, come up with some friendly user um, rules so that the owners of those buildings can quickly convert those into accommodation which will bring more people back to the CBD, liven it up, more shops and it'll turn around the kind of dreary um, and unsafe nature of the CBD as it, as it is at the moment. There's a golden opportunity here to do something.
0: Wayne, what's the number one thing you would do to relieve the cost of living pressures on Auckland households?
2: The number one thing within a council's prerogative is to uh, have a laser-like focus on council costs get on top of exactly how much we're up for this city rail link, declare those costs, and hoe into the costs on... Uh, I'm going to be really um, cost conscious, you know.
0: On, on the rail link, aren't those commercial negotiations at
2: the moment? They don't sound at all commercial to me. Under commercial negotiations, the contractor in a bill every month. So every month, the, t- the, contra- the uh, owner knows where they're up to. Mm. And so they're not telling us And they either know and not telling us, or even worse, they don't know. And, and, that's, and it's never good news if they're not telling you. And so, like, when we did the $500 million hospital on time and on budget, every week I knew the cost and every month the board knew the cost. And they do vary. The idea of saying that, oh, it's just going to be great. And as things went up, we could make decisions to bring things back into it. But no-one at the council, and from, I've heard very little from the government, seems to be able to make any decisions which are controlling these things. And it's a it's bit lame to just blame COVID like lots of other buildings are going up pretty well on budget without that. And and people do things during COVID to limit costs.
0: Professor, obviously we've talked about your public transport policy. Is there another policy that you would introduce that would help to relieve the pressures of the cost of living crisis? I
3: think we've got to focus first on that free public transport policy because that's going to return $27 back to people's back pockets. And so that's what we've got. That's how you alleviate the cost of living crisis. I don't know what Wayne's talking about. Focusing on costs. It's like saying, oh, Mexico's gonna build the wall. You have no idea of the numbers. And what we've got to focus on, yeah, and I'm telling you now, $27. He can't name how much his um, IT thing's going to cost. He can name name how much the cycle waste are going to cost or how much it's it's there but he's not going to tell us where he's going to find savings, where it's going to happen. What we've got to do is have a very clear and honest conversation with our voters. I've been honest. I'm telling people it's going to return $27 back into their back pockets and the other thing we're going to do is make sure that we get housing back on the rental market because that's where our major challenges are and that's going to help people because people can't afford housing in this city and we've got to do better. The number one thing you do Craig?
4: Well the council doesn't control the price of milk, butter and cheese, so we have very little say in the overall cost of living crisis. There's nothing you could do. There isn't really anything we can do. Right. But what I can do is do everything possible to make sure there's no rates rise, massive rates rise. Now if we can stop that, my idea to do that is change the preferred contractor system because that's where uh, so much of the rates is bleeding and hemorrhaging out. We change that, we get that down, we make it more efficient, we don't have to ask for more money from from the populace.
0: I'm going to finish up with a few curly questions then I'm going to ask you each for your vision uh, for Auckland in the future. Wayne, I'll start with you. So you came on our show when you led the report into the future of Auckland's ports in 2019. But that report went nowhere in central government. You couldn't get meetings with senior ministers. Why should we believe that you have the interpersonal skills to work alongside central government?
2: Well, both uh, Labor and National have appointed me to um, fix their problems in the past and on the hospital board for instance there you, you get a very random selection of humanity arrives on the hospital board and they all came in behind, we all work very well together and we're, we're still friends. So uh, as far as that goes and then there's an election coming up in a year's time and I'll tell you what, they're going to be very friendly to to the, to the Mayor because it ha- will have an impact on, on their own chances in a year's time. So I don't have any problem with international interpersonal skills and, and each week I still get texts from John Key and Helen Clark. They're often conflicting, but they do talk to me still.
0: Yeah, I, I guess the question is, you've done the work. If you had the reputation when it came to that port report, why weren't you able to progress it further? And that comes down to relationships.
2: No, it doesn't. It comes down to a couple of people who block it because they don't want to hear something that forces them to make a decision. One of those is, is just tossed this job in.
0: A fessel. In the eyes of some, you have a reputation as being absent too frequently from important council votes. So why should Auckland voters believe you're actually committed to the wrong?
3: It was on this show when we went into lockdown and I stood out there as the Manukau ward councillor and represented my community when there was the COVID lockdown, when people were panic buying and when there was no rollout of the vaccination or a really poor rollout of the vaccination for our citizens and I made sure that people had a strong voice and so I want people to know that whilst my attendance is one issue, that's not how you mark the councillor. The councillor has been out there standing strong for the people of Manukau. That's what I've been doing and I think Manukau will look back on the service that I've given them and they'll be proud of the fact that someone stood up for them and gave strong advocacy.
0: Craig, if you're not successful, if you lose, will you stop running for mayor?
4: Will I stop? Well this is only my second chance at it so will I go a third time? Let's see what the public say.
0: All right I'm going to give you each an opportunity then to paint me a bit of a picture. Tell me how Auckland will be different three years from now if you are elected mayor and Craig we'll start with you.
4: Well I want to be a Mayor for everyone. That's my goal. My job is to be there to serve the people and by doing that I've got my policies and ideas to better serve the people and I think that's what a council's job is. We're a core service provider, we should be servicing what the people need. In three years time I expect it to be a well working like clockwork machine that does exactly that. What the people want the people are going to get and they're going to get it effectively, they're going to get it efficiently and they're going to get it with fiscal responsibility which hasn't really happened for a long time and they'll get a voice and and that's really what I want to achieve.
3: In three years of fiscal, how will Auckland be different? I'm in this race because I have two young daughters and I want this city focused on our families and making sure that our children are in a society that's climate resilient, that we're we're taking care of each other and the planet and it's for their their peers at school as well we've got to be future focused you want a mayor who's going to lead the city who's going to be courageous and collaborative and constructive and I've shown on my time on council that I can work with anyone It doesn't matter what their political backgrounds are when you get to that council table you need to be able to work with everybody and I made a decision to sit next to Desley Simpson I represent the poorest ward in the city she represents the wealthiest ward in the city that's how you have robust conversations that's the kind of inclusive collaborative leader I'm going to be for Auckland. Wayne, how will Auckland be
0: different in three years if you're Mayor?
2: Well, Stuff recently published an article saying that a third of the people wanted to leave. So in three years' time I'll have people who are proud to be Aucklanders and proud to live here in a city which is cleared up, where the population isn't measured by the number of cones, but by the number of people, where the CBD is safe and the shops are filled again and, and people are on the CBD streets and also that the rural areas are remembered and their roads are improved as well because it's a city that goes from Wellsford, who never thought they were part of Auckland out to Pukekohe who didn't want to be. So it's a pretty broad brush approach required and also people will feel that we're on top of the costs, which is an important issue and they don't have to face automatic, relentless increases in rates and perilous levels of debt.
0: Wayne Brown, Professor Collins, Craig Lord. Kia ora koutou. Good luck. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter
1: or on Facebook. Coming up on Q&A. And it's got nowhere. There's, I mean, there's no tracks. Oh, last time I went down Dominion Road, still nothing. It is nothing progressing. From... I mean, they have uh, they have a preferred I mean, route. I
0: mean, it is it is progressing.
1: I mean, you know, the light rail is progressing slower than light rail will go. He
0: supports the Zero Carbon Act. So how would National Simeon Brown reduce transport emissions? Kia ora welcome back to Q&A. The government has pushed ahead with plans to allow councils to trial new road layouts under the so-called Reshaping Streets Plan, which are designed to reduce car use. But National Transport Spokesperson Simeon Brown says the government has declared war on cars. I asked him why he opposes the plan.
1: Well, look, it's a pretty radical plan that the government's put out there in terms of what it's trying to ideologically do. There's a couple of good things there about maybe trying to help street markets and those sort of things take place in uh, local shopping centres. Mm. But outside of that, it's basically an ideological attempt to try and force people out of their cars. And in a number of ways, you know, closing down streets around schools during pick-up and drop-off times... Um, being able to put modal filters, which basically says cars can't go in or out of a particular street, Mm. Um, turning streets into playgrounds. I mean, my view and the National Party's view is that streets are there to actually get people where they need to go. And so this is a a sort of an ideological plan. And at the core of it, takes away the opportunity for people to have their say and removes a whole lot of consultation requirements around these things. And so we see, you know, consultation is, is important and that happens um, but this is going to strip that away and people are going to get, I think, quite upset. As you mentioned, a large part of the government's proposals focus on the school
0: run. Data from State Insurance has found that car accidents in New Zealand peak between 3 and 4pm. They literally peak during the school run. Do you not want to make the school run safer?
1: Well, look, we absolutely want to make the school run safer and there's, there's ways that you can do that. How would you do that? And I think the way that you need to focus on is, look, there's things you can do around infrastructure, there's things you can do around speed limits um, at that particular time when kids are being dropped so off what and would you picked do up. You? Well, I think one of the things that is being talked about at the moment is around speed limits around schools. I mean, I think what the government's proposing again goes a bit too far in terms of permanent speed limit reductions. Wellington City Council has taken that to the nth degree. But around schools, in terms what of would reducing speed limit. Well, I think having a temporary speed limit reduction around all schools is a good thing during school pickup time and school drop-off time. What should that speed limit? Well, be I think that? 30 or 40 is a good is a good speed around those pick up and drop off temporary times but the reality is when you just go and reduce the speed 24 7 then of course you get in the way of doing other things as well so the need have targeted solutions to these problems mm. rather than sort of an ideological thing which is we're just going to slow everyone down all of the time.
0: Speaking of ideology I've got a really basic philosophical question for you. In growing cities how do you reduce
1: congestion? Well, I think there's a number of ways that you can reduce congestion. I mean, ultimately, National is the party which has started the City Rail Link, and that's going to double the capacity of our current rail network in Auckland, and that's fantastic. That's, that's going sure to make pretty it... pretty cold on the City well, Rail Link there for well, a long time, well, u- Simeon. So ultimately, though, Jack, we signed you it got off. got there in the Construction started while yeah. we were in government. Um, and it's and it's underway. And look, I mean, that's going to make a huge difference to Auckland in terms of the ability to get on the rail network, get into the city and enable that public transport growth. And that's, I think, going to make a huge difference to our city. So, you know, you have to build more infrastructure. Um, you have to look at things like congestion pricing as well. We've, we've been open to that as an idea. Uh, we supported the Select Committee inquiry into congestion pricing. There's a bipartisan agreement that that's something which mm. can help to manage those peak demands. Um, so you have to look at a range of tools. Do do, do, sorry to interrupt. Do more roads reduce congestion? Well, like I think more roads. Uh, we look at where the capacity may be required, mm. and so with population growth, um, you are going to need uh, more capacity, um, but that needs to be in the right place. Um, and so you know that's not just freight movements, but people getting around mm. Auckland. If you look at where people go to work, um, it's not all just to the city centre. So we do have a, a you know a sparsely populated city mm. um, in a you know challenging geography. So. You know, roads will be so, part so of the solution. So the city solution. rail link can
0: only do so much. Well, and roads will be D. and roads
1: be part of that solution. And I think you know, even the governments admitted that. Then mm. you know, Mill Road, Penlink, um, these are things that they've you know they're taking a long time to get going, but ultimately they have to be part of the solution as well. Give me your understanding of the induced demand principle. Well, I think what, you know, people talk about the induced demand is if you build more roads, then um, people will drive more. Well, I mean, the point is people drive t- to get to where they're going. I don't think there's many people out there who just go, well, there's a new road, so we might as well use it. Um, actually, the point is the demand... Transmission de- gully? Demand is that, well, the people who use that road are travelling to work or they're travelling home or they're getting into Wellington, mm. getting out of Wellington. So uh, the, 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 the demand on that road is a, pr- is a product of where people are trying to get to. So you don't, you, don't, to do. you don't believe in the induced demand principle? Well, I think what does induce demand is when uh, you do have people living further and further away mm. um, from the place that they work. They obviously have to travel further. Um, and so there is a, obviously interrelation between planning policy and transport policy. Um, those, those are important questions to ask. But I, but I think the point is that people demand is based on what people are doing mm. with their lives. Do you support the Zero Carbon Act? Absolutely. The national parties are signed up to the Zero
0: Carbon Act. So transport is responsible for our second largest emissions by sector. How would Transport Minister Simeon Brown reduce transport emissions?
1: Well, there's a number of ways that we need to do that. And I think, you know, start by saying, you know, we've signed up to net zero by 2050. and mm-hmm. um, That's bipartisan. Um, and so we're absolutely committed to that. Christopher Luxon has p- uh, given... The associate transport spokesperson role to Scott Simpson, who's also our climate change role, and I think mm. that's sort of indicating there's a lot of work that we acknowledge that we need to do in this space. So what would you do? So I think the first thing is we have to acknowledge the emissions trading scheme will be doing the heavy lifting. It's a key part of obviously pricing the externality of carbon emissions. Right, so if petrol's $3 a litre. To
0: how, how, how high would petrol go in order for us to, for us to meet those targets?
1: Well, look, that's ultimately what happens when you've got a, a, the ETS. Will play that role mm. to a large extent. So and then you if must we, have done some sums. How high should New Zealanders expect petrol to go under a
0: national government if we're relying on the ETS to do that? Well, the, the ETS estate? will
1: play, a, a, it, and that's a market-based role. So at the mm. moment, it's eighty-seven dollars. I think it's something between nine and nineteen cents a litre. So I, I can't give you an answer as to but what you must have what some the, what that particular um, number will be. Um, but the point is that will do the heavy lifting in terms of. Um, making those choices, right? But the ETS affects petrol price, right? That's that, right. That's how it's going that's to work.
0: Right. So I don't want to know what the ETS is necessarily going to get to. I want to know what petrol is going to get to.
1: Yeah. If we're relying on petrol
0: under your government to reduce our transport,
1: well, I guess the, the you, you know, I'm saying it's one of the one of the things which needs to, will happen regardless. You the heavy lifting. It will do regardless of who's in government. We'll do the heavy lifting, and that's a market based approach. So what that does over time, it will have an influence. Mm. Uh, I don't know what the ETS will be in three years, five years, or ten years' time. Um, that will increase or or, or be... But I suppose if we're not taking other large-scale
0: projects to try and get people out of gas-guzzling vehicles, then... We're going to face really,
1: really high petrol bills. Well, there will be other things that need to happen at the same so, so time. So, what else so, would you do? So, for example, I mean, we've, we've, said, to the, we've said around the, the clean car standard, that's part of the package the government's put forward. Mm. We do agree with it. Over time, we do want to see the, the emissions reduced. We want to make sure that New Zealand's not the, the dumping ground mm. for older cars. But we want to make sure we work with the industry to make sure those emission standards are realistic and reliable. Understanding we're a very small market. Out there, but we do need to have those emission standards. Right, at right but it, place. I mean, but by, by sector, yep, transport, second yep. biggest emitter. So, aside from those clean car
0: standards. And aside from the ETS, what else would you do to? Well, I mean, I emissions?
1: think you, you look at what we've done around the city rail. That's going to have a significant impact in terms of public transport investment. But it's not going to get we, us near we're, we're, where we need su- to we're be. we 2050. The, you know, out my way, the Eastern Busway is getting constructed. We're very keen to see that the uh, the Botany to the airport mm. part of those things. There are a significant number of public transport projects that will need to be done. Congestion pricing will play a, a role in terms of helping to incentivise people to make those choices at the mm. you know at that time as well. But at, at the same time, you know. You look around the world and you see the big car companies making the decisions to go all electric. This is coming regardless. We need to make sure that we are on the right step and so have the right. So the market's like
0: responsibility rather than government.
1: Well, the market will play a significant role, and we have to be realistic right. about because if, 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 you, if you set the standards too high, what will happen is people will end up not being able to necessarily afford to buy those newer vehicles or there won't be the supply mm. and so people will hold on to dirtier vehicles for longer as well. Exactly, so which would make incentives for buying cleaner vehicles yeah. and so perhaps a know, practical solution. Yeah, so, so you I'm supported to... the clean card discount? Oh, we didn't support the clean card right. discount, we supported, well, I mean, and the point there is it's, it's a very inequitable scheme, I mean it's taxing people who don't currently have a choice and it's effectively subsidising, you know, people who already effectively do, people Mm. earning significant sums of money, um, being able to go out and buy Teslas, who already effectively can afford to make those choices. So what we're saying is look, we're looking at what Mm. we can do in that space remember National, um, we put the the RUC exemption in for electric vehicles when we were in government Mm. Um, that was one of our policies, Um, so we're looking at a a range of options, I'm not here to Sort of announce those right now no, for no, you, that's Jack, fine. but I, I, there will be, I, be uh, policy, be policy around this. So, so I, I noticed uh, in an op-ed you published the other day, you said
0: that in the future most cars will be EVs running on clean technology and presumably with renewable electricity. The current government set an EV target of 30% for the New Zealand fleet by 2035, would a national government, with Simeon Brown as transport minister,
1: be more ambitious? Well, look, I'm not here to announce what our particular policies are be. Would you be more, not, not for the specifics, all well, of one I want to know is, would you be more ambitious than that? Well, I mean, it's all one, well and good to have ambition, and I think it's one thing, the government's got an A for ambition and, you know, an, an E for execution. I don't know where I've heard that before. Um, I don't know where I've heard that before. <laughs> I don't know well, where I've heard that before, <laughs> but no, no but we're here to talk about you. We're not yes, here to talk no, about no, the government. I, I, I it's understand.
0: all well and good to have ambition. You've said that you're ambitious when it comes to the Zero Carbon Act. You said you've yep. signed up with bi- bipartisan support, but so so far you've told me the only way you're going to get there through your transport portfolio is through supporting clean car standards and the ETS but you can't even tell us how much petrol will cost
1: Well I, I, what I can tell you is that we'll have you know, a robust policy on this closer to the election and I'd make the point that you know, for all the government's ambition um, they said they were going to electrify the government fleet by 2025 mm. They're woefully behind um, even on, on that particular target and so it's all well and good to have targets but you've actually got to, you've actually got to make sure they're practically achievable and that's, that's where we're doing a lot of uh, thinking and talking to the industry to make sure that when we do announce our policies they are robust. To what
0: extent does your party risk being left behind by not supporting Auckland's light
1: rail? I don't think so at all. I think, I mean, the reality is that's a 29.2, up to $29.2 billion investment um, in a new mode Mm. with a... Uh, a route which was effectively announced before the 2017 election. This government's now spent you know, tens of millions spinning the wheels on consultants and working groups, and it's got nowhere. There's, I mean, there's no tracks. Oh, last time I went down Dominion Road, still nothing. It is nothing progressing. To
0: think, I mean, they have uh, they have a preferred I mean, route.
1: I mean, it is it is progressing. I mean, you know, the light rail is progressing slower than light rail will go. But the point I'd make there is. This government's really achieved very little on this. You know what Not they. asking about this government, They can, they they will get them on, and they can defend their own record on that. But I want to know if, at any point, you will support light rail in Auckland. Well, the point is they haven't even made the case for it. There's no business case to which actually backs it up. They've got an interim business case. There's a significant number of assumptions, and on the do you support on, the notion of light rail in Auckland? Well, we don't support what the government has put forward. Um, as a proposal, $29.2 billion. You've got to look at the opportunity cost and what else can be done to get people on public transport in Auckland. What role do you see the Auckland Harbour
0: Bridge playing in the cycling network, the current bridge?
1: Oh, look, none none at all, none at all. To be honest, um, that's one of our most critical infrastructure connections in New Zealand. Um, We know that it's under significant pressure and I think reallocating lanes uh, without actually building additional capacity would, I think, be the wrong thing to do. We need to make sure we're actually focused on the future, not just reallocating lanes. What about from a safety perspective? Are you aware of official advice about risks that a trial might pose? Look, there's a number of, um, I've seen a number of OIAs around what the trial may do in terms of congestion, obviously the risk in terms of the interactions between cars and walkers and cyclists, um, and the cost of that as well. Um, I just think the reality is that, you know, we've got to be focused on what the future lies in terms mm. of the Auckland Harbour crossing it's one of our most significant connections, it's critical to our resilience mm. that's where the conversation needs to be um, rather than simply just playing around the edges um, with, a, with a, you know, reallocating lanes. Uh, when you talk about a second crossing, that's expensive. We get it
0: transport infrastructure is hugely expensive. At a time when your party has been calling for fiscal discipline, should transport projects with a low benefit cost ratio be approved?
1: Well, look, I think, you know, obviously we'll be announcing our policies close to the election around what we what we intend to do, mm. but I think the There's question, a broader question, question though, about your process yeah, I mean, and deciding what should well, be prioritised. And absolutely look through priorities and, and what the cost benefits of these particular so, projects so, so, so are. So to be clear,
0: should should transport infrastructure projects with a negative benefit-cost ratio be approved?
1: Well, I think you've got to look at the, the wider picture there. and I That's think what looking, a benefit-cost ratio is yeah, for. Yeah, no, 100%. If you look at the... And I think if you're looking particularly in the context of the Auckland Harbour Bridge, mm. um, you've got to look at what the lifespan of that is and also the, the renewal... Uh, the need to potentially renewal, It's right? not just so, the Auckland so Harbour a, Bridge, though, so a right? It's, it's, I mean, you've been talking about value for money when it yep, comes to, to light
0: rail. So the East-West Link had a negative benefit-cost ratio. That second Auckland Harbour crossing for cars has a negative benefit-cost ratio. Plenty of the roads of national significance that your government supported had negative benefit-cost ratios.
1: Why should we spend money on stuff that we're not getting good value for. Well, I mean, you look at Let's Get Wellington moving, I mean, I think they've got a point 0.2 or point 0.3 But my question's about your process. Ratio. Yeah. Absolutely. So, 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 so,
0: um, but, so I mean, this is a bipartisan thing. So Sh- should any transport
1: infrastructure prog- uh, projects
0: that have a negative benefit cost ratio be approved?
1: I mean, in principle, what you want to do is get good economic return, right? Mm. That's the key. So you need to make it's sure... It's not just
0: economic returns, is it? It's, it's reducing emissions, for
1: example. Well, it's all it's all of those things, and that needs to be factored into mm. when you're looking at the benefit cost ratios, and those, those processes have to be robust. I mean, mm. I note... Auckland Trans- So they have to be robust. Auckland Come on, you
0: you're, you're just not answering the question. I've got r I've got a really basic question there. Should projects with a negative benefit cost ratio be approved?
1: Well, I think in the in the context of the Auckland Harbour Bridge, you've got to look at I'm asking, in terms of renew- I'm asking in term- for all the renewing big spending
0: infrastructure.
1: Why won't you answer this? Well I mean I think you've got to look at what are the individual projects, what are they what are they seeking to achieve. In principle though, you want to make sure that they are Providing Mm. a return over and above the investment that you're doing, so that's a a yes if you like them. Well, look, I think you've got to look and you've got to have a robust process. And I think you know, if you look at what Auckland Council is proposing, they're proposing taking out time saving as one of the things that you even look at. This is a bipartisan thing. I mean, there are all these analyses that go ahead for these big projects,
0: and we get a number at the end. It's either negative or positive. Should you know, uh, is the public getting value for money out of this? Yes. And you can. And in principle, yeah, they should. After the break, after months of questions from Simeon Brown, contracts awarded to Nanaia Mahuta's family are set to be investigated. <music> Kia ora, welcome back. The State Services Commissioner has announced he'll investigate potential conflicts of interest between government departments and a company owned by the husband of Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta. When allegations of potential conflicts of interest were first raised, we spoke with the Minister. Have you ever had an undeclared or mishandled conflict of interest as a Cabinet Minister?
2: I've had uh, a a situation over these number of years to really consider my family obligations. So I have declared conflicts, they've been managed appropriately and in accordance with the Cabinet Manual.
0: Now since that interview, several more allegations have been made. Public Service Minister Chris Hipkins and Nanaya Mahuta requested the investigation and here's what Minister Mahuta said this week.
2: I'm really pleased uh, that the Public uh, Service Commissioner is going to have a look at issues around uh, the way in which conflicts of interest have been managed in relation to government contracts, I think that's an important step forward. It's concerned me for some time uh, that even though I have declared conflicts of interest and uh, noted that they've been managed in accordance with the Cabinet Manual, these stories are still persisting.
0: Simeon Brown has been calling for an investigation for months. I asked him why it's necessary.
1: Look, I think what you see here is a number of contracts which her husband's firm has has received um, while she was the associate minister for three of those particular um, ministries. And so I think there's a you know clear perception. Is there been any issues or, qu- or around the procurement of those? Has there been any influence? Those are questions I think mm-hmm. which need to be answered. Um, but that's not to rule out the fact that you know we we do live in a small country and that people. Uh, you know, conflicts of interest do arise from time to time. It's right. about how they're managed. Were they managed appropriately, and were those procurement policies followed to ensure that those perceived conflicts of interest were appropriately managed? That's what we, look, we were asking questions about. So, so to be clear, your issues relate to contracts awarded through, I think, four different government departments. Four different departments. Agencies, right.
0: that's yeah. So, do your concerns relate to the conduct of Gannon Ormsby, the
1: Naimahuta's husband, and the Mahuta family, or rather? Those agencies. Look, well, I think it's it's about the agencies and what happened, and so what happened right. through those procurement processes. Um, you know, obviously there's a question of, of ministerial involvement. I think the mm. Ministry of the Environment report has already come back. Said, look, that's been ruled out, but there was a range of um, issues which led to that perception. Um, and I would say the Ministry of the Environment actually went through one of the more rigorous processes mm. as opposed to the others, which I think went through less rigorous processes. Yeah. And so I think there's certainly issues that need to be addressed, and that's why we wrote to the Public Service Commission and he's agreed to an inquiry or an investigation. Let's not get too bogged down in whataboutism. As you say, uh, New Zealand's kind of small, we're just mm. a big village,
0: everyone knows everyone. In 2013, then Minister Paula Bennett appointed Amy Adams' as sister, Belinda Milnes, as Families Commissioner. Was that appropriate?
1: Well, look, I think a point I made, as I said in the introductory comments, conflicts of interest do arise from time to time. It's about how those processes are managed and to make sure they go through a robust procurement process. Now, now look, I, I know that you're probably going to raise the one about Bill English's um, brother shortly, you know, and that went through a rigorous process. The Labour opposition at the time made, uh, asked a lot of questions. There was an inquiry. Um, and the process was said to be, um, ha- have held up. So the point is... Mar- Mark
0: Mitchell's sister uh, was employed by Parliamentary Services or is to work in his
1: electorate office. Is that OK? Well, Parliamentary Services has the process again, and the question there is, has that process been followed, my understanding, is it has? And so I'm not saying that conflicts of interest mm. don't exist. Um, and, you know, I've been very careful about, in all my comments around this particular issue, um, to just say, look, my job is the opposition spokesperson mm. for public services. Questions need to be asked. Uh, So the Cabinet Manual says perceptions of conflicts are as important as conflicts, and so it's important that we're rigorous to uphold faith in our public services in New Zealand. It's an issue
0: of transparency, right?
1: Well, that's effectively what I've been saying, and so look, I'm pleased that there's an investigation underway, and ultimately the the government also Mm. wrote to the Public Service Commission acknowledging there's a perception issue here, it's better to get a a report or an investigation done to clear what's actually happened. So if transparency is so important to you, do you support the release of the Sam Uffendale report? Well, look, I think it's an issue there around a national party Inquiry into his behaviour. Um, it was always going to be a confidential in- investigation to ensure that the people who... Why don't we deserve transparency? Well, if we deserve transparency th- about government contracts, why don't we deserve
0: transparency around an elected official?
1: Well, the reality is there was always meant to be a confidential process. Um, Christopher Luxon was very clear about that right from the start. Well, what, and why? We, we got why? I the, thought I mean, transparency is important to you. We got a, we got a King's Council in to I know undertake the review.
0: Um, we haven't um, seen the review. And, so so and No, no, but it's an issue of transparency. I mean, you... Uh, You can't have it one way and then have have it completely different on the other side. If transparency is so important to you on this one issue, why isn't it important to you when it comes
1: to your own colleague? Well, the issue here in terms of what the the government and the ministry is, is taxpayers' money... In regards to what's happened with these contracts, so there's some serious questions, in the I'm and I'm asking about Sam serious, There's a serious public interest question there, and I'm pleased and, 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 an and a serious public in interest place. question. Sure, is there not a serious public interest well, well, in Sam well, Muffindale? well, There absolutely is. And, okay, and so I, so do you support I, transparency? What I on I there front. is that the National Party leader Christopher Luxon has. Was very transparent about the process he was going to undertake right from the he was, front. He was tran- might
0: not be happy transparent about a lack of
1: transparency. You might not be happy about the process, <laughs> but that was exactly that's what the the witnesses agreed to, and, and, and others agreed to go through mm. and come forward and provide evidence on that basis. And so, therefore, I think you know he's been very clear on that issue.
0: You're active on social media, quite active, and I know that you you often give as good as you get, but. Um, it seems to me that you are often subject to uh, some pretty pointed comments from some of your political opponents.
1: I wonder, do you read that stuff? Does it affect you? Yeah, no, I read it. I read it and have a good chuckle. Do you laugh? I do. I, when, I, when I first became an MP, um, I, I learnt very quickly to turn notifications off on Twitter. Mm. Um, and so I did that. And since then, Twitter's been fine. Um, but I do read it for a good chuckle from time to time. I, you know, it's a, it's a wild place, mm. um, social media. Um, and sometimes it can go to some pretty feral places, but you know, I try to keep to the issues and mm. what's important to me and my portfolios. You know, other people like to say things about me, but at the end of the day, um, you've got to, you've, you can't, you can't take that stuff too personally. Do, do, you, like, do you think people bully you? Do people bully me? I mean, I think they they sort of prod me and try to get me to react. Um, the point is, um, I don't react to that stuff. I think the reality is. You know, it's a feral place, it can be a feral place at times, Twitter. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people who hide behind fake names and all sorts on both sides, right? Mm. Um, and from my, from my perspective, it's an opportunity to get messages out there and talk and, and, and talk about what's important to me and my portfolios and, um, you know, free speech, people are able to say what they like back. Alright. Well, thank you very much for your time. We look forward to those transport
0: policies in the year ahead. Thank you very much. That is National Transport spokesperson Simeon Brown. Stay with us. Q&A's back after the break. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Nga mihi ki a koutoui Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.